This is Macro Horizons, episode 11, Steeper is Coming, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Johnny on the Spot Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of March 25th. And a spoiler alert, Ben, earmuffs, there is an answer to the question, who is John Gall? The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. This week, we saw the Fed out of the market yet again. Ten-year yields fall below 250 for the first time since January 2018, and the three-month tens curve pushed dangerously close to zero. Ian, how has what we've seen over the past several sessions shaped what you're thinking about the market? Let's face it, it's been a pretty exciting week in the Treasury market, and that isn't something we have the opportunity to say very often. In fact, the biggest takeaway was the Fed coming in exponentially more dovish than the market was expecting. We saw the dot plot lowered with the 2019 rate hike estimates dropped from 2 in December to 0 this week. In addition, we had only one rate hike projected for next year. Effectively, Powell just told us that he has reached the end of the tightening cycle. We've been very much in the camp that 240 could represent the end of the tightening campaign, and this week's Fed meeting gave us confirmation of that. The net result of the developments this week has really reinforced our general trading views for 2019. We're still looking to end the year with 10 years at 255, give or take. The biggest change on that front is, if anything, we would skew the range that we expect the market to trade in incrementally lower. Said differently, there's a reasonable chance at this point that 10-year yields will trade with the one handle before the year is through. We also continue to expect the biggest trade of 2019 will be the re-steepening of the 2s 10s curve, although timing the entry of that trade is really going to be this year's biggest challenge. Other data developments recently bring up a very important question that will guide the market over the course of the next several quarters, and that is, what if the Fed's decision to end its tightening campaign is enough to prevent a domestic recession, but it isn't enough to prevent the rest of the world from slipping into a more prolonged slowdown? We're reminded of the adage, When the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. And while that might not be particularly apropos in a globalized economy, it still nonetheless appears to be at least incrementally relevant. The issue with Europe is complicated even further because unlike the situation in the U.S. and in China where there is monetary policy action that can be taken to offset any slowdown, in Europe not only is the ECB already at the effective lower bound in terms of rates, but 
politically as well as procedurally, it would be very difficult to enter another bond buying program. The most shocking data out of Europe came in the form of very disappointing manufacturing PMIs from Germany. In that context, it wasn't a surprise to see boon yields dip into negative territory. Along with that, we actually saw 10-year JGB yields dip below zero for the first time since 2016. All of this points to a continued range trade in 10s and 30s with a bit of a downward bias. The front end of the market, however, is where we really expect the bulk of the debate to play out this year. On one hand, the stubbornness of the Fed to rush into an easing campaign will prevent yields from trading much further through effective Fed funds, particularly in twos and bills. Interestingly, we've been watching the three-month bill versus 10-year spread push up right against inverted. And if we don't see that flip into negative territory in the very short term, it's sure to become a reality within the next two or three weeks. With that backdrop, we expect the next several weeks to be quite defining for the direction of the Treasury market, as well as the implications for markets globally with an eye on EGBs and JGBs. Okay, John, the gloves are off. We're talking about if and when to time the re-steepening of the curve. Obviously, the Fed shocked the market on the dovish side this week, which brings up the question, is the curve flattening over? Is there a little bit more to go? Or should we simply be piling into the re-steepener at this point? By way of a little bit of background, John came in this morning, apparently after a night alone listening to Adele, eating ice cream in the dark, and was really wound up about this idea that we're getting behind on timing the re-steepening of the curve. So with that context, John, why don't you give us the baseline of your argument? So after my normal weekday night, the reality is the capitulation shown in March, capitulation is probably the strong word. It's a rational recognition of what's going on in global economics right now. We're approaching the end of a cycle. And to me, the justification for the flattening trade was the Fed's going to hike to at least neutral and possibly past neutral given we have unemployment below sustainable. We're growing faster than potential. So therefore, it makes sense to go into like at least neutral, if not slightly hawkish territory. Brainerd talked about this. Evans talked about this. Powell talked about this. This is kind of like the party line and baseline expectation. And that framework has been pushing the curve flatter for past several years. March is now different. As of the SEP, there's no expectation of another hike in 2019. I mean, they penciled in one in 2020 and 2021, but given the myriad of different things that could break before then, that seems like a hopeful estimate. So, okay, we've moved to an entirely different framework. And to me, the Fed just came out and said, we're basically stopping at 240 and neutrals 275. So a lot of the impetus for the push flatter is kind of taken out of the market. And now the question is, when do you time the re-steepening? Because you don't want to get this wrong. One, it'll be one of the most important things that happens this year. And two, there's negative carry in entering steepener positions. So it's not one of those things where you just want to throw on and sit on it, even if, you know, I think both of us have pretty solid confidence that if we roll the clock two years forward, the curve is going to be steeper. So it's the question of, 
when do you enter this, where do you enter it, and uh, kind of the framework to think about that. So by point of clarification, John and I don't fundamentally disagree. The curve will be steeper. The next 75 basis points in twos, tens is going to be steeper. It's not going to be flatter. The question ultimately comes down to one of timing. Are we talking about weeks before we put on the steepener, or are we talking about months? I'll err on the side of months rather than weeks, but it's a very valid debate and one that we think that the market is currently having. Returning quickly to John's point about what the Fed has communicated over the course of the last week, i.e. effective Fed funds at 240 is the end of the cycle, and their estimate of where neutral is is 275, let's call it. My counterargument to that is within the same set of projections, the Fed also told us that core PCE was going to be running at 2%. And if we see inflation continue to underperform, in real terms, policy rates will be that much tighter. And I think that that's one of the key risks that suggests that a Fed that is on hold, reluctant to let the market price in any rate cuts, will risk flattening the curve, perhaps to the point of inversion. Obviously, different parts of the curve are already inverted. We've been on about the three-month bill versus 10-year curve for a while. That got as low as four basis points, give or take. An inversion on that front obviously has implications for corporate profitability and a generalized slowing for the real economy. The other point that I would make in terms of what is driving the curve at this stage is this notion that the Fed is the de facto central bank to the world. However, they're reluctant to fully embrace the role and cut rates based on what's going on in Germany, what's going on in China, what's going on with the overall global growth outlook. I'm definitely sympathetic to that idea, but I'd also argue that that makes the flattener that much more likely. So I agree with you that the Fed's mandate is not central bank to the world. It's U.S. maximum employment in the context of price stability. How then should we think about how that manifests in pricing? Well, you brought up three months tens. What about three month twos? And uh, you have this idea, okay, the Fed's not going to cut because it's going to be reluctant to embrace that role. Fair enough. But over a two-year window, you could easily see higher conviction of cuts rolling in by 2021. In fact, if you look at the response to the March meeting, the biggest rally in euro dollars occurred in early 2021 contracts. And so, okay, we could think of three-month bills are going to be continued to kind of trade sideways as the Fed stays on hold, but you could see a rally further out the curve. You know, as we get further and further away, the possibility of cuts becomes more likely. And we looked back at how inverted can twos get to three months. And it turns out it's about 50 basis points. So at least by that framework, yes, we're in negative territory. Twos are now clearly trading through Fed funds, but they could have a long way to go from here. I think you nailed it exactly, John. We're on the same page that two-year yields can trade well below three-month yields. The question isn't, will that happen? The question is, how quickly will that happen? And how willing will investors be to push that spread further into negative territory when there's not an imminent recession in the U.S. economy. So I think the operative question here is kind of at what point is the market going to be really convinced 
that rate cuts are coming. That's what's going to push two-year yields much lower, inverted versus Fed funds, more deeply inverted versus three-month bills. And I think a reasonable assumption there is we're first going to see it in the dot plot. And at the March SEP, what we saw this past week, even the lowest dot in the 2019 estimates was 240. We still have one more hike baked into 2020, and that stays flat out to 2021. So there's still no member of the FOMC that's been willing to submit a dot below current Fed funds. Do you really think that Powell would let someone submit a dot that implies a cut? Because imagine what that does to the market. The market says, oh, look, the Fed's projecting a cut in 2020, 2021. I'm going to get in front of that. And that's where you see a massive rally in the front end of the curve. And I think you're exactly right. It's an amazing communication contradiction to say the domestic economy is very strong. The labor market remains tight. But yet here are several members of the FOMC projecting that we need to ease monetary policy in the next several years. So it would be a contradiction if it occurred this week. But it didn't. And it makes sense. We still have inflation at best hitting 2% in the SCP. We still have unemployment below Nairu. What happens when the economic forecasts, if you think about it in a classic Taylor rule construct, show inflation forecasted to be below 2% for the next few years and unemployment creeping up to Nairu, if not above? In the Taylor rule, that says the Fed should lower interest rates to provide more accommodation. At some point, you're going to have to see the Fed maintain credibility if their economic forecasts deteriorate to the point to include cuts. Because otherwise, I mean, think about what that would say. If we have unemployment suddenly coming in close to four or five in a couple of years, and the Fed is like, we're not going to cut rates or do any of that, they would have to respond in order to maintain credibility. Otherwise, people will run for the hill screaming policy error. Well, there's also a pretty strong argument that they simply abandoned some aspect of the forward projections, whether that is the detail that they offer in terms of inflation versus core inflation, or that's the absolute rate level projection or the dispersion of the dots. I don't know. What do you make of that, John? So I think one of the potential event risks that's on the horizon, which is hard to have a directional bias going into, but will be important, was there's a big conference the Fed is having as part of its framework rethink. And this includes strategy and communication around how do we provide forward guidance? What's the best way to do this? Such as, do we keep the dots? Do we modify the dots? Do we add? Do we subtract? Stuff like that. And this is going to kind of culminate in a conference in Chicago on June 4th and 5th. And the reason why those dates are important is, in theory, if they came to a big decision there, that means the next round of the summary of economic projections could be altered to reflect their findings at that conference. So, for example, it's not 100% obvious the June SCP will just kind of be an update of the March SCP. It could look like a very different animal. Alternatively, and as we have typically seen with monetary policy from the Fed, changes such as this do take a while to actually be implemented. So perhaps what we see is a decision communicated via the minutes from the June meeting to make future changes to the SEP or the projections. So either way, it's something that's on the table and certainly is something worth considering. And Ben, I think your question is incredibly salient and important because it's not obvious. How do they communicate cuts without causing everyone to freak out that we're going into a recession? And 
the reality is, to Ian's point, be it they update in June, we're approaching a cut cycle in the next couple of years. Hopefully, they have a different communication framework in place before we really go over the edge. And at that point, it's kind of not necessarily worth deliberating on how will the dots communicate a cut cycle if the dots don't exist in their current state. The other thing that I would add to that is I've had several conversations over the course of the last three or four weeks about what an easing cycle would actually look like if and when the Fed needs to change course, or rather change course again. One of the central debates is, does the Fed ease in 25 basis point increments, or do they ease in 50 or 75 basis point clips? So with that context, I could very easily imagine a world in which the Fed doesn't need to change the dot plot because the bulk of the easing occurs within a three or four month period. So imagine we're at 240 Fed funds right now. We see a dramatic shift lower in the economic outlook. The Fed eases 50, one meeting, 75, the next. Then, frankly, the dot plot becomes far less relevant, the larger uncertainty being how far is the Fed willing to cut rates before implementing another type of easing. One question all three of us have received, I think, is how is the Fed going to be able to cut by more than 25 basis points at a time, given how much lower rates are now than they have been in cycles past? Sure, over the past several cycles, the average rate cut has been closer to 50 basis points. But now that effective Fed funds is what we assume stopping at 240, there's not that much room to fall 50 basis points at a time. Yeah, so I've gotten this question a couple times. And I would almost flip the logic on its head is because of the proximity to the effect of lower bound. And there's some debate about whether the Fed doesn't go all the way back to zero, stays a little positive, or you know, even theoretically goes into negative interest rates, because of the proximity to whatever the terminal cut would be, maybe there's going to be concern that they don't have enough firepower. And that concern about lack of firepower means they need to respond more aggressively in order to kind of convince market participants that they have a grasp on economic activity and inflationary pressure. Well, one of the things that the Fed did announce that I thought was brilliant was this idea that they would start investing portions of SOMA into the bill market because that allows them, if and when the moment comes, a degree of flexibility to conduct something comparable to an operation twist where they extend the duration of the Fed's balance sheet. And to that point, one of the things about normalization is, okay, maybe neutral is for the Fed to have a market-weighted portfolio. They haven't. After the last twist, they sold all their bill holdings. So the Fed's holdings, kind of as reflective of broader treasuries outstanding, have skewed longer to provide more support. It makes sense for them to go more neutral, whether just to try to hold a more neutral stance or to your point, that means when they do need to extend the maturity and push down longer rates, they have more ammunition. We have taken this conversation a bit far afield from the original question, which is, is it time to enter the twos, tens steepener now, or do we retain a flattening bias awaiting a specific inflection point? So I think between the two of us, I'm more biased to enter or kind of call the cyclical re-steepening in the next couple weeks rather than the next couple months, but I wouldn't do it just yet. And the reality is that a big risk factor that could drive a major flight to quality and push down tens 
is Brexit. If a hard Brexit were to actually occur, then you don't want to be in a steepening position. And until that risk is formally put to bed, I would hold off on entering until that's out of the way. So here's another way to think about it. Envision the treasury market trading on a very strong non-farm payroll print that makes up for the shortcomings that we've recently seen. Arguably, a lot of that had to do with weather. How does the curve respond in that environment? Well, of course, not everything is going to push the curve steeper. It's more, at this point to me, from a cyclical fundamental perspective, the curve's starting to inflect towards steeper, and it's trying to identify a strong entry point. So in that vein, Ian, I think kind of what you're getting at is how much better do things need to get in order to kind of go back to the regime we were in only a few months ago? At what point does the data improve to such an extent? Do non-farm payrolls show such strength? Does inflation maybe start to pick up that we actually see the dots start to move up again or maybe the feds start to sound a little more hawkish? Is that even possible at this point? Well, I definitely think that we've reached the terminal rate for this particular tightening cycle. The Fed is still holding on hope that they'll be able to pull off another 25 basis point rate hike in 2020. So pricing in more optimism from the Fed certainly isn't out of the question. In fact, if we do see a continuation of some of the 2018 strength in the labor market that has flowed through to higher average hourly earnings, which has really yet to translate through to realize inflation, again, that being the big mystery of the cycle, I could easily see an environment where the market tries to push back against this idea that the Fed is done. And in that world, I think that's where you get that reflattening of the curve to a point of inversion that occurs in a very bearish environment for the front end of the curve rather than what we have been debating, which has been a bullish flattening. Which is similar to what we saw throughout much of 2017 and 2018. That's a very fair point. And I guess I would follow up with that. If I'm looking at two stun steepeners at 10 basis points, I'm looking really, really hard at negative 10. That's another great point, John. No such thing as a bad bond, just a bad price. And in line with a conversation we might have been having in the fourth quarter of last year, if you like tens at 3%, you're going to love them at 325. Hmm. So it seems like 275 might be the new 325. I guess that makes sense. In summary, you two are broadly in agreement that steepening is going to be kind of the next big trend in the treasury market. Really where the nuance comes in is the degree of timing, whether it's do you get in in the next several weeks versus the next several months. But that'll be one of those points, I think, that we'll know it when we get there. Well, the offset to that is timing really does matter in the treasury market, and early is wrong. So you're saying that in terms of the steepening trade, you hate to turn up out of the blue uninvited, but you couldn't stay away, you couldn't fight it. You'd hope to see my face and that you'd be reminded that for you, the flattening isn't over. Never mind, John. I'll find someone like you. We're expecting a calmer period for the Treasury market as we put in a reasonable amount of consolidation in and around the present levels. That said, technicals do show the market is in relatively overbought territory, which suggests we might have room for an in-range backup in rates. 
Nonetheless, we still expect that 10-year yields will test 240, and an ongoing grind flatter in 2s, 10s seems to be intuitive. We'd target the low to mid single digits on that spread. The market will be tasked with taking down a fair amount of supply in the form of bills, twos, fives, and sevens, as well as some floating rate notes. That will add pressure on the flattening side for the market, again, consistent with this idea that it's still too early to time the re-steepening of the curve. In repo space, there's quarter end, so we'll be watching for any dislocations comparable to what we saw at year end, although given the comparative relevance, we're doubtful that we'll see such extremes. It's also notable that next week marks the end of the Japanese fiscal year. What will be most telling is how that investor base changes its behavior in the fiscal new year on April 1st. If anything, we'd expect a pickup in buying of treasuries in that space. However, given how unattractive hedging costs are presently, we doubt that we'll see a big wall of buying initially. In our model trading portfolio, we've entered into a long in 10-year tips. We also took profits on the 530 steepener that we had in place at roughly 65 basis points. The logic still holds fundamentally for a steeper curve, but we're moving that into the 3s, 30s curve simply because 3s look relatively cheaper on the fly. The one data point of relevance will be the release of core PCE. It's January's data. The consensus is for a two-tenths of a percent increase, which would bring the year-over-year rate to 1.8. It's notable that that is the lowest since February of 2018. And recall, in the Fed's most recent central tendency projections, they have core inflation running at 2%, which suggests a continued underperformance will ultimately prove problematic for the Fed, although It's only January's data, and there's 11 other months in the year to try and make up for any early shortfalls. In terms of the tone of trading in the Treasury market, we have reached levels not seen since the early part of 2018. We're now through the yield lows achieved on the 4th of January, at least in the 10-year space most notably. Well, one might think that this would be an opportunity to play the market from the short side just because of the outright level of yields. We're a bit cautious on that front, primarily because of the grinding nature of the rally. It wasn't a massive repricing in low volumes. It was a very slow and steady repricing that was accompanied with a fundamental shift thanks to the Fed. So with this backdrop, The redefinition of the range will be the trade rather than playing for any extremes in either direction. Admittedly, that's not the most exciting call in treasury space. However, there has been a meaningful paradigm shift, and in its wake, we expect a period of consolidation to establish a new volume bulge in the market from which to initiate the next move. We've reached the point in this week's podcast where we would like to thank everyone who has managed to listen this far. We truly appreciate the implied interest in our market thoughts and would note that no doves were harmed in the production of this recording. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. 
As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.